So, hey, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Uh, joining me on the uh, the other side of the conversation today is Mike Conflone. He's up in New Hampshire. Uh, Mike had to cover an article in uh, the uh, April issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist. Uh, one of the bonus features this month was a... Uh, uh, video detailing how he scenicked the paper mill. So there's more of Mike on the way. So welcome to the show, Mike. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me this morning. Oh, I tell you what, uh, my pleasure. Do you, uh, looking at your website, looking at the different things that, uh, we've seen through MRH, uh, you're an accomplished modeler. Thank you. Uh, let me ask you, uh, how'd you get into the hobby? I've been into model railroading since I was a kid. Um, I guess uh, childhood friends of, of mine had uh, model trains that were handed down to them. And um, I'd also had an interest in real trains. My grandmother used to bring me down to the end of her driveway to watch the Long Island Railroad go by. So there was a bit of a, a seed planted there. And then um got my first train set at, I think I was 11. And from there, it just blossomed. I, my mom uh, found the local railroad, uh, model railroad club in Smithtown on Long Island, New York, and um, I joined the club probably around 1980 or so, and and that was my first look at a basement-sized layout. It was in the basement of a church building, and I was mesmerized by that because I hadn't seen anything beyond a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood up to that point. And that uh, started the, the madness that uh, continues today. Okay. And I'm 44 today, so I've been into modeling since, uh, you know, since I was... Uh, uh, you know, for about three decades, over three decades. So it's been quite a while. Okay, yeah. That's uh, your story. is very, very typical of, of most of us. We get uh, get hooked as a child, and then uh, it blossoms. Next thing you know, you got a fortune tied up in toys. No, you ain't kidding. <laughs> so we've got uh, the first issue there, and it's, as I understand it, part one of a three-part series. Yeah, that's correct. The paper mill uh, article is a three-part series, and Joe's uh, got the second part all ready to go for May, and then we'll finish it out in June. So, um, it, you know, it's a, it's been an interesting um, experience, uh, and I've really enjoyed working with Joe. It's very exciting to get on board with a publication that's on the bleeding edge. Um, these guys are uh, real, uh, real swift and very smart and are very much in tune with what modelers are craving out there. So I was more than happy to uh, to get on board, jump in, uh, you know, head first, and just get get moving. So, yeah, we've got two more parts to this, and I think people will enjoy a lot of meat and potatoes in the second part and the third part, and then, of course, the, the accompanying DVD that we did. So lots to look at. Okay. And, yes, I remember on one of the uh, staff uh, – conference calls, uh, he was mentioning the video that you had uh, sent in, and it was very impressive. And then I watched the bit uh, on the website, and yeah, when uh, he finally announced he's going to make the uh, video available, so I'm in line to get one of those. Great. Like you, I got into the hobby in the early 70s, and... You can just never stop learning if you want to. You can always find something new to do or to do better. Absolutely. Yeah, and the intent was um, uh, from the st- 
start, you know, I figured I was going to video the entire process and give everything to Joan, you know, with the thought that perhaps they would do a DVD. And I think when he took a look at it, he realized there was a lot of good stuff there. It was the first time I had ever done anything like that. So, um, you know, for me, it's a learning process as well. I'm no expert at being on camera. And, you know, it's uh, little bumps in the road here. And I think as I move forward and get into additional projects, it'll get better and better, I hope. I think the bottom line is people have to like the product. And so far, the feedbacks from what I've seen has been good. Uh, but any criticism, constructive or otherwise, I take it and I learn from it and try and do better the next time around. So I hope people enjoy the DVD if they you know, have taken a chance on it or if they've got the downloadable. Um, there's a lot to learn in there. Um, you know, it's not rocket science. I'm generally a pretty... Uh, uh, simple kind of, as far as techniques go, I don't have a lot of science behind what I do. It's a, a lot of madness and just kind of going at it chaotically. But, you know, it, this is stuff that anybody can learn and uh, get good at with some practice. You know, not looking for spoilers here, but just the DV, DVD, what are we going to see in there? Just a brief overview. The DVD is a comprehensive uh, soup-to-nuts um blow-by-blow blow account of building that scene from absolutely a hole in the wall, essentially, with bare drywall to a completely finished paper mill scene with photo backdrop and everything. So okay. it really takes the um, uh, the viewer through every pro every single step in the process, you know, and that includes preparing the, uh, the scene, the photo backdrop installation, all the ground cover, yeah, weathering track, um, making wood chip pile, creating landforms, forest. Uh, there's, there's a ton of stuff in there, and it's a very compact space. The space that uh, that paper mill is in, only how, it's only three feet by six feet approximately, so it's very small, but it, you know, we're trying to represent a massive paper mill in a small space, so um, there's a lot to do in that small space in order to make it, you know, convincing. So um, lots of different techniques are demonstrated. Um, you know, not, not every technique that I that I do, um, you know, but every technique that um, everything I did to create that scene is demonstrated um, in uh, in a nice, uh, clear fashion uh, at some point during that DVD. And it's almost three hours in length. Wow. Okay. You also have authored, I believe it's three books two of which have already sold out, and the third one is still available. And you publish a periodical, the Railroad Explorer, uh, the Northeast Rail Journal. Uh, how about an overview of that for the listeners? Sure. Railroad Explorer was started back around 2000. Um, I'd always wanted to do a magazine that specialized in uh, high-quality color photography of northeastern rail subjects, not a news magazine like Rail Pace, which had been, has been around for a long, long time, but more of a journal that just featured high-quality photography with, very, with no advertising, really just a nice, almost a mini-book, color book. So I, I started out in 2000 with Railroad Explorer, and we're on issue, up to issue 35 now. So we do it three times a year, which is a little a little peculiar. Um, it's not quite quarterly, so we do a winter issue, a combined spring-summer, and then fall. You know, we're again, we've been doing this for you know, 12 years now. It's a very, very small publication. You know, we don't have a massive readership. You know, we have a, a you know a contingent of subscribers and dealers that have supported us since day one, but it's it's a small piece of a small pie, and that's fine. 
people who get the magazine really enjoy it. It's, it's, it's extremely high quality, printed here in the U.S., right up the road here in New Hampshire. Um, it's a labor of love. You know, and off of the Railroad Explorer magazine, I've done books as well. We've published, uh, I don't know, five or six books in total. I've authored, co-authored three of them. You know, we've, and we've got another major book in the works, which hasn't been announced yet, but will probably be out in the latter part of 2012, early 2013. So, you know, uh, it's an interesting sort of sidebar, um, completely different than the modeling, but, uh, but nonetheless very interesting. And it, you know, back when I started this, I was an active rail fan and I went out train chasing like so many other people did and took that very seriously for a long time and spent a lot of time doing it. And that, you know, the magazine was an outlet for that, uh, for all of the people that I hung around with and uh, a place to get photos published and, you know, kind of do some creative um, you know, articles and things. And it's, uh, I don't, you know, get out and rail thin very much anymore. My, you know, time, personal time is limited for everybody and you have to kind of pick and choose what you do. And the, the model railroading is, is uh, takes up pretty much all of that time now. I still do get out occasionally and I haven't lost interest at all in it but it's just I can't you know get out so it's uh but but we're going to continue with the magazine um there's even a possible strong possibility of um of model railroad hobbyist publishing an electronic version of, of railroad explorer at some point it's not uh, confirmed but we are looking mm-hmm. into the possibility of doing that as well so it's uh, pretty pretty cool stuff Okay. Yes, I've uh, gone to the website, which for people is www.railroadexplorer, all one word, dot com. As uh, you'll see examples of the photography, very good professional level photography, plus there's where you can order back issues and subscribe. Okay, now, so what brought all this about? We've got an Allagash Railway. That's your model railroad. Right. Uh, I've read, of course, the MRH. I've read articles uh, about your railroad and other publications. And even I was interviewing uh, Mike Rose, okay. and he had mentioned your name. And this was about the, the time of an article in another uh, magazine was out. And when I looked at that article, I was just impressed that even on a magazine page, the depth that the scene I was looking at had, mm, okay. which is to get – depth perspective in a two-dimensional medium. It was executed very well. So you mentioned that you started model railroading as a kid, joined a club. That's where the bug bit. Uh, as far as there in uh, your home, let's talk about the railroad there. Is that the first railroad you've actually done by yourself? No, I, I had um, had a small model railroad, uh, again, as a kid, and then kind of let the hobby go for a while when I was in college. I mean, I stayed connected but didn't have a layout when I was away. And then we moved to New Hampshire at our first house, which is not too far from here in Goffstown. Built our first house around 1990, 91. And uh, I did build a layout in the basement there. It wasn't really a, what I would call a serious effort. I mean, it was a decent effort, but it was my first real layout. And that was there for about five or six years, uh, maybe a little less. And it wasn't until we moved here to the house we're in now um, that I decided I, you know, needed to get serious about this and, and do something. So the first first few years in the house, we kind of languished, and then I built a couple little benches and played around more than anything else. And eventually started to um, get serious about it and start to figure out that I wanted to, to figure that I wanted to have a, a large basement size layout. So I started to make some plans for that, started to work on the basement, getting things finished, doing the typical things that need to be done. 
And, you know, at that point, um, this was probably around 2004 or 2005, around that time frame, I was able to go visit Dick Elwell's layout in western Massachusetts. And when I did, it absolutely blew me away. The level of craftsmanship, the room that the layout was set in, the way he had done everything, and just the sheer size of it. I had read about the, the, that layout in, in the magazines over the years, but to visit it, and to meet him was was terrific, and that really was the impetus to get serious, to get really serious. Um, so I started to uh, to build the the current layout. Um, now this this Allagash Railway is only it was only born, or the idea for it was born back in the summer of 2010. So about two years ago, or 2009, I can't recall. Now. <laughs> I'm getting mixed up with my dates. It was either 09 or 2010. Might have been 09. But anyway, I had, prior to that, I had um, started to build this layout based on the uh, Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, the Canadian Pacific, the Main Central, the Lamoille Valley short line, and then my own internal short line called the Woodsville Terminal. So I built this small shelf layout, which was the Woodsville Terminal Hardwick and Woodbury Division. And that was first featured in Model Railroad Planning 2007, and that's where that was the first time I was published in, in, in model. And then from there, the Allagash concept was born. You know, again a few years ago, and then it really exploded. I mean, it's just you know a major, massive build out, and that's where we are today. And I can go into detail about where the railroad's at, but essentially it occupies the entire basement and the garage. We actually have a drive under garage. We knock the wall down between the garage and the basement. So you're talking about a 58 foot long by you know 24 foot space, very big space, and uh, it's about all I can handle, frankly. That's uh, that's huge, and you must be married to a saint who allowed you to take over the garage. There's a story behind that. Yeah, there's a, there's a story behind that. <laughs> sure yeah, there there's is. a pretty good story actually. It, you know, as any modeler knows, you never have enough space. I mean, regardless of how big the room is, it's just never quite enough. You can always use some extra space. So. I was able to commandeer half the garage, okay? So Susan agreed to give me half the garage, and she would continue to park her car in the garage, and the mine would be out in the snow in the wintertime. So my friend Bob Gurley came over. He's a carpenter. We put up a wall, divided the garage into two, blah, blah, blah. And then so I spent the year or two with that scenario and whined and complained that even half the garage still wasn't enough to achieve what I wanted to achieve. So one Father's Day, she gave me a card from my son, Thomas, who was very small at the time, maybe five or six, I don't know. And at the bottom of the card, it said, P.S. Mom says you could have the other half of the garage. And that was a great Father's Day gift. So, But the arrangement was that I had to start her car every morning or get her a car starter. So I get up, or you know, she, gets, she leaves very early in the morning, but I get up, I go out in the wintertime, I start her car, get it all warmed up, cleaned off, and that's the agreement. She's happy. I'm happy I have the whole garage, bada-bing, bada-boom, done. So that's the way that kind of happened. And, um, you know, it's it's a great – I am very happy with the room, um, with the space. It's I don't think I'd want – honestly, I don't think I could do any larger than that if I had the choice because it's simply too much to manage. You get to a point where unless you've got a group of people that are constantly there helping you, it becomes very difficult. So I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, the amount of real estate I have is just about perfect. 
Well, I got to tell you, I mean, the vaccines, planting of hints and all that stuff to get your wife to acquiesce, you taking over the whole garage. You ought to probably Secretary of State Hillary Clinton could learn a few things from you and help her in dealing with the Afghans. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all about negotiation. See, she's a big time gardener, Paul. And uh, we we both are, but she's a ravenous gardener. Like, oh, we have a couple of acres, and she's outside all the time, and we've got trees and shrubs and perennials, and she's really heavily into that. So I always used to throw it back at her and say, hey, listen, I've got, I want 58 feet. You've got two acres. No, who's getting <laughs> the short end of this stick, you know? <laughs> I always I always seem to win that argument, so. Okay, so now we've got this humongous space. So we've got this big basement, and your wife has graciously given you the garage. So what do you do to, uh, because you say that you are concerned about all the aspects, the environment, the room it's in, and so forth. So how do you prep the space before you start a building? Um, well, that's a good question. I, and I really haven't done it uh, in the proper order, I'll be honest with you. You know, I started out by doing drywall, you know, the typical stuff, preparing the walls, you know, preparing the room, and things like that. But as time went on, you find that perhaps the way you prepared the room wasn't to your specifications or wasn't as good as you thought as you went down the, the road. So, um, for instance, in the, uh, I added a drop ceiling just recently in the garage, the area I had mentioned I redid with the staging yards down there. We added a you know, drop ceiling after the fact because I wasn't happy with the acoustics in that garage. It was a drywall ceiling, but the acoustics were lousy very echoey, and so the sound-equipped locomotives didn't sound all that great. And you were always kind of shouting and you know, when you to, to speak with people so that the acoustics weren't so great, and it didn't really look all that nice. I said, let's get a drop ceiling put in. You put a drop ceiling, and then you have to add more lighting. So that's what we did. We've added, uh, and I will just to make a make mention of the, of the lighting, I like to use uh, fluorescent fixtures um, of the 8-foot variety, T8, uh, strip lights, you know, I, you know, I can't say enough about having enough light in the room. And I've, you know, kind of added as we've gone along, we've added additional lights as time has gone on. And at this point, just to put it in, to give you a point of reference, uh, the room is 58 feet and we've got around 25 or 26 eight foot light fixtures in that room. So yeah, it's very bright and you know, but that, to me, as I get older, my eyesight's not quite what it was. Uh, my close vision's not all that great anymore. Um, so it, I find that I need more and more light. Uh, back, you know, five, six, seven years ago, I didn't, uh, the need for that much light just wasn't there. But I need that light, not just for photography, but, you know, for task lighting and just really to see everything. So we've added additional banks of fluorescent lights as we've gone on. And, you know, uh, you can pretty much get a suntan in there when you crank the, the you know, the light on. And the the meter outside is, you know, turning quite quickly, so we'll see. Plus, we'll add some, um, we've got some low-voltage track lighting uh, that'll highlight some areas. And, you know, so the lighting is important. It's, a, you know, very important. Some people like to do a valence um, around the layout. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. I prefer to have the raw tubes right overhead. So these uh, fluorescent fixtures, these strip lights actually go attached to the track on the drop ceiling. So you you can see the fixtures when you look up. They're not like behind a diffuser or um, buried in the ceiling or anything like that. When you turn on the lights, it's just an amazing jolt of, of sunshine. But it's, you know, I'm modeling a gray cloudy day, so it's, it simulates overcast or cloudy bright conditions. But that, you're getting a real intense light with that versus it being diffused or, or 
you know, I'm not a, again, I'm not a fan of, of valences or that shadow box sort of look. I prefer to feel like you're outside and the light is everywhere around you. So that's what, uh, what we've done. And I know that's not everybody's cup of tea. A lot of people like to, uh, to hide the source of the light behind some sort of a valence or, or whatnot. You know, it's to each his own. Okay, but it comes it comes across very well in the photos. I mean, you've I get the feeling, yeah, I'm dressed in a sweater because it's a chilly day and it's gray and overcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. It, it's um. Did you put carpet down? Yeah, you know, it's uh, again another sad story, but a, but a good one in the end. Yeah, it's the carpet guys just left last night. I just had carpet installed here. So just give you a little bit of a story, a little, a little quick background. Several years ago, again, five or six years ago, this is six or seven, seven years ago, um, I had carpet installed down there in the in the basement, wall to wall, before most of the bench work went up, and which was a stupid thing to do, but I did anyway. Now, we live on a, in a, uh, in a, on a very dry piece of land. Uh, we never had a drop of water in the basement, but we had this massive flood in 2006. It was called the Mother's Day Flood uh, in New Hampshire. It was, it was unbelievable. This low-pressure system parked itself off the coast here, and, and it rained for three straight days. We got 13 inches of rain in three days, which was amazing. So, you know, to make a long story short, everybody's basement flooded. I had water gushing in from every place. You know, I was down there for three straight days with a shop vac trying to get rid of it, sweeping the water out. Nonetheless, the carpeting was, was destroyed. I had to remove it all. So I ripped it out. And since that time, as I've built the layout out, I've been using carpet tiles in the aisleways during op sessions to give a little bit of comfort. But the bottom line is, you know, I spoke to this earlier, um, the room, for me, it's very important. Maybe it's not as important as people who come visit, but for the, the layout owner, for me, I, when I go downstairs, I want it to look as nice as my living room or my den or whatever. So getting carpet back in there and getting everything, all the walls painted, um, all the backdrops painted, everything nice and clean, and then doing the carpet again, trying it again. Hoping that, in fact, that was a 100-year flood and I never see another drop of water down there, so I'm rolling the dice a little bit. But we went ahead and had carpet reinstalled. And this time, the installer, we actually, um, they did a custom installation where they, the carpet is only in the aisleways. So it's regular carpet, industrial-grade carpet on a nice upgraded 8-pound pad, but it's only in the aisleways and in the common areas. It's not under the layout at all because we're going to have black curtain material that's going to hang down from the uh, fascia and hide the edge of that anyway. So it's a great installation. They just finished. They were here for about three days. They just finished late last night. And I'll tell you, it's what a difference. You go down in that basement now, and it just looks like a finished room instead of a basement. It really makes a huge difference. So that's done. And I think that will help with, with the sound as well. Also keep people's legs uh, from getting too fatigued during, you know, these six- to eight-hour operating sessions. Now, did you put uh, a crew lounge space, or do they ever have any time off during these op sessions so they can't sit down anyway? Yeah, I, I wish I had a crew lounge. I don't. I have common areas. There's two common areas, and I say that they're relatively small, but they're areas where people can hang out and, you know, uh, maybe pull up a chair. And I'll have, you know, stools and chairs situated throughout the railroad room, but there's no... If someone really needs a break, basically we use the kitchen, right upstairs. Go upstairs, hang out. If you're off duty, go upstairs, hang out, grab snacks or whatever, shoot the breeze, and then come on back down. And we have, you know, breaks for lunch and dinner and stuff. So, you know, the crew lounge in essence, in essence, is the main floor of the house. I wish we had a crew, you know, I wish we had a crew lounge in the railroad room, but I just don't have the space. You know, I would have had to sacrifice, you know, a major amount of space for that. I just just don't have it. I do have a dispatcher's office, which is. It's actually um, 
the utility area where the boiler is and the water softener, it's about a, oh, I don't know, maybe a 12 by 12, 8 by 12 room. The tracks, the main line actually, Kennebec sub actually passes through this, this room. It's closed in. It's got a door and everything. Um, and back there, I've got my scanner and radios and, you know, all the stuff a dispatcher needs. So, um, you know, and people can come back there and bother the dispatcher and sit down. And there's a couple chairs, and you can kind of take a load off. So there, there's places to go. Again, so you pick this, the geographic area up there to, to model, and you decided to come up with your own road instead of uh, basing on a prototype. And then, so what led you to that decision and the time frame you picked? Because you've got a fairly finite time frame that you uh, focus on. Right, right. So a few years ago, when, when I decided to make the change from the little short line that I was doing, the Woodsville Terminal, to this regional railroad, you know, and that happened for a lot of reasons, and the, that was described in the article in Model Railroad Planning this year, in Model Railroad Planning 2012. Um, it went through the details of why I made that decision. Basically, I was frustrated with the, the lack of action on this little short line, and, you know, I said, I really wanted to come, I've always, always wanted to do my own um, railroad, and I've done several, you know, pro, um, proto freelance layouts over over the years and um so but i really sat down and thought long and hard about this one and said i got to get this right i've always loved the state of maine i've rail fanned a lot up there i've been very interested in the prototype railroads up there the maine central the bangor and aroostook the canadian pacific um the cn you know maine is a massive or was and still is but much more so back in the 70s and early 80s a massive producer of traffic number one paper producing state in the country at the time massive uh you know industry you know in such a vast um territory of uh sparsely populated territory relatively speaking so it was it was a big time uh, attraction to that both when I rail fanned and just reading about the railroads uh, up there uh, a lot of a lot of interest and a lot of draw so I said let me let me uh base this proto freelance lance concept in the state of Maine I think I can get a lot of bang for my buck it'd be very interesting so I came up with the railroad called the Allagash Railway. Allagash is a town in extreme northern Maine, and it's also a region up there. The Allagash Wilderness Waterway is a um, an area that's protected. Back in the late 60s, it was uh, protected, but historically, um, it's uh, you know historically big time logging took place up there and continues to take place now. But it's very lonely, remote territory. The one interesting thing about it that kind of led me in that direction was the fact that there's no railroad located on that side of the state. The Bangor Aroostook runs further east, the main central further south and east. And so that, that territory is relatively uh, available, so to speak. So um, I got the main map out and spent quite a bit of time plotting the course the route of the of the railroad and quickly established connections. You know, my good friend Joe Posick, who is really the brains behind this whole thing. I mean, him and I both, he understands what I'm doing just as well, if not more so than I do. He pretty much anticipates every move I make. And so we, you know, have he's my consultant, you know, and we've basically uh, come up with this whole sort of thing together in every step of the way. We spent a lot of time on the phone talking and, you know, how are we going to do this? What's the best way? What's the best route? What's the traffic? What's this? And we went on and on and on and really came up with a strong, very, very laser-focused sort of scenario that was as believable as possible. We set the stage around 1977. We've recently upped that to 1980. 
for a couple of reasons. But anyway, you're dealing with late 70s uh, or right around the turn of that decade. And it is it's laser focused. There's no um, it's not one of these deals where you buy one of everything because you like it. it you know, what would a, a railroad about the size of the Allegash, which is a, a you know, a robust regional on par with the Bangor and Aroostook, maybe a little bit more muscular than them. What kind of locomotives would they have? What kind of traffic would they have been um, hauling? How do you differentiate them from the BAR or the Main Central? You know, you don't want to be a exact same sort of railroad. You want to be a little bit different in certain ways. So all those things were considered and hashed out over months and months, and, and that's where we are today. So, um, and the railroad continues to build. It's built out from end to end, completely done. But getting back to your question, the reason I went with a, a proto freelance and not a prototype, because I've always been a bit of a dreamer, and I like to do my own thing and be creative and not be, you know, stuck in the box, so to speak. So with a railroad like this, I'm able to make essentially model prototypically for that time and era, you know, that era and that, that uh, geographic area, but do it in a way that, you know, allows me to, to spread the uh, creative wings a little bit, you know, establishing a locomotive roster. You know, I don't have to have just GP7s and GP38s and blah. I can have, F, you know, F units and Alco centuries and, you know, within reason, of course, you know, what would a railroad of that type purchased at the time and what was the rationale behind it? All those things were thought through. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent just with the wheels turning in my head about how this would, you know, play out. And, uh, you know, the, the goal at the end of the day was to make this as absolutely believable as possible. You know, like the V&O and like railroads like, the, you know, the Alan McClellan's V&O. I mean, I look at that as the absolute benchmark for uh, for a proto-freelance railroad. I mean, uh, the V&O, as far as I'm concerned, was a real uh, a real railroad. And there are a couple of others, too, that I really like. The Atlantic Great Eastern, Jack Ozanich's AGE. That was in the same sort of territory as mine, although his was had much more further reach. His went out way into New York State. But he also modeled that time of year, early spring, and most of his modeling was Data Maine. Uh, Tony Custer's Allegheny Midland also had had appeal for much of the same the same reasons. So that's what set the stage for the Allegash. If we can execute the plan, I think it'll be up and you know hopefully be you know considered uh, you know a believable proto freelance railroad at some point as people get more exposed to it. Um, it's still early in the game. Okay, so you've just really noodled what you want to achieve, uh, like you say, very, very finite laser precision on the road, how it survives, motive power, and so forth. Uh, when you set up, you know, and embedded with that is, okay, how am I going to construct this? Is it built for obsessions? Where you've got buddies come over and you actually have obsessions. What's your theory there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, I would say the goal all along of the objective, the absolute top of the list is, is prototypical operation, period. But that doesn't mean that, at least for me, uh, I can't sacrifice anything else. I'm a little bit in pretty intense kind of guy when it comes to this. I, I don't compromise scenery or the room, the comfort of the room, the actual physical appearance of the room, or, uh, you know, anything, really. As far as I'm concerned, they're all equally important. You know, like there's this debate that goes on operations versus scenery and all this baloney. I, I think it's nonsense myself. I think, you know, if you endeavor to, to make a great model railroad, all of this stuff is important, and it should operate prototypically. Um, it should look prototypical. The scenery should, you know, as far as as much as your skill level can take you there, you should endeavor 
to do good scenery and not leave just plywood or you know uh, a basic scenery and just kind of ignore it and say, well, it, who cares about that? We just we just want operation stuff. Unless that's your thing. If you know you set out to say, you know what, I want to create a prototypical operation and I really don't care about scenery, then that's fine. You know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's a, it's a hobby and everybody does what they want to do. My person personally, for me, they're all extremely important and none can be really compromised or um, you know, they're all top. Of, of the list. So operationally, yes, extremely important. We've had a bunch of operating sessions and each one gets better and better as we go. And after we do a session, you know, like for instance, you know, most people build the layout out and, you know, plan it <laughs> properly and do all those things. I haven't, I'm not real good at planning. I'll be, the, I'll be honest. I'm not a good planner. I'm getting better at it. I'm getting much better at it. A few years ago, I was a terrible planner. I would just, you know, shoehorn something in there just to get it going and then just deal with the consequences later, you know, and I've been dealing with those consequences for years now, um, you know, ripping out stuff, redoing it. Uh, granted, some of the, the, the legacy bench work in there was from the old layout and it wasn't built to the standards of a, a you know, a regional railroad that would be hauling bigger trains. So there's some reason for that, but nonetheless, you have to, you know, to, as we do these op sessions, you, you kind of come up with a punch list of things that simply didn't don't work. One of the things I realized uh, after the last session, which was in the fall, I said, all right, enough's enough here. You know, we don't have enough staging capacity. The staging yards are not, they're just not built right. right? They're not big enough, et cetera. So I need to attack that. So I actually I ripped both staging yards out. I, I gutted them a couple of months ago. This is after the uh, paper mill project was done. I did the paper mill deal, and then I closed the book on that and I went into the garage and just simply gutted the place and uh you know and and rebuilt it soup to nuts with uh and I'm still rebuilding it Mike Rose is coming over in a couple of weeks he offered to help build uh, I've got a, a double stage uh, a double uh, you know multi-level staging yard going in there it's the only multi-level bench work on the layout but um so that had to be done to address the shortcomings that we experienced during the opera session where you had trains going in, lack of capacity, unable to get around, you know, just poor planning, bottom line. I'm, I'm guilty as charged, poor planning. So I'm trying to, as I do things now, take into consideration what the objective is, plan accordingly, and do it a little, take a little time, do it slower. So I'm almost there. I mean, essentially the railroad is built end-to-end. It takes about eight to ten guys to operate the layout, and generally we go six to eight hours. Yeah, it's it. They're long sessions. Everybody has a job to do and multiple jobs. It's a combination of local switching, over-the-road stuff, uh, all kinds of uh, cool stuff. It's it's really set up. I, I put a lot. We put a lot of thought into the jobs and how they'll operate. Joe and I really sit down and we we think it through. You know about how jobs interact with one another, interchanges, traffic flow, all that stuff. It's all really important. And you know the only way to test it is to have a session and see what happens. So um, that's what we've been doing. And I think the next session we have will be sometime, you know, in the summer with the new staging yards uh, and the new um, construction that was done in there. And I think it's going to be a, um, a real good one. So with any luck. Okay. Well, let's, how did you, let's go back to construction technique. Are these along the wall with peninsulas, dominoes? How did you approach that? Yeah, it is very linear. You know, I've used, I would say, I must, I've used every square inch of of the space I can possibly use. Um, it goes around the walls, but there are peninsulas as well. There's a one very large peninsula in the uh, in the basement. 
you know, big turn back curve, um, and that was spoke. We talked about that in the model railroad planning article, um, which is one of the signature scenes on the layout called Knox Farm, where it just basically comes around this big sweeping curve and disappears. And um, uh, you know, so there is peninsula, but the majority of it follows the walls. There's a lot of uh, small walls that divide scenes, so you don't go into the room and see everything. In most cases, you only seeing where you are. Despite the, 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 the you know the size of the room, it's it's kind of subdivided into uh, nooks and crannies, you know. So it creates the illusion of distance. And you could be you know in the north staging yard up at you know, Allagash and not in, and not really have any clue where anybody else is in the room at any given moment because they're spread out and they're hidden behind walls and stuff. So um, as far as the construction techniques, it's basic, you know, box bench work. It's, uh, you know, nothing fancy at all. You know, uh, everything is uh, neat and clean. There's fascia. There's, uh, you know, photo backdrops on the walls. The walls are, you know, drywall. Um, you know, nothing fancy, really. It's just a nice, uh, nice clean look, which I've worked on, uh, really worked hard to try and achieve a nice, you know, clean look to the room so that you don't have distractions. Is this hand-laid track? No, track is all um, microengineering, code 70 flex, with a little bit of code 55. Microengineering switches. I prefer the microengineering switches because, well, the only problem with them is that you're stuck with a number six and all that, and, you you know, we know that there are, there are limitations there, but I also use some Shinohara number eights on some of the passing tracks and stuff. Uh, but but the, the work-a-day stuff, it's, you know, it's number six microengineering. I like, the you know, the, the fact that they're sprung. Um, I, I, I'm not a big fan of switch machines. I don't. I have two on the entire layout, only for switches that are turnouts that are inaccessible. But beyond that, I think they just cause more trouble. You know, the less the less uh, things to go wrong, the better. Though that's the way I look at it. Well, I need to ask the obvious question. Uh, so your DCC? Yeah, with DCC. Uh, uh, Digitrax DCC. All locomotives are Soundtracks equipped, sound decoders, and continue to build the, the locomotive fleet little by little and Soundtracks is uh, as far as I'm concerned right now is the only game in town so I did some recording with them uh, back in 2007 I organized three recording sessions for them and uh, basically most of what's in their Alco f- catalog actually everything that's in their Alco catalog uh, came from those uh, oper- those um, recording sessions that we rec- uh, organized and uh, and also um, one of their EMDs as well so it's really some really good stuff, and you know I hope they get some competition because I think competition would kind of help things, you know. Uh, but uh, right now, if you're serious about sound, they're they're the one. Okay. Well, and just a sidebar to that, I there's a I guess a lot of renewed effort by ESU to adapt to the U.S. market. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a couple guys who've spoken very highly of the uh, you know the the lock sound. That, especially the new stuff. They've got new leadership, I guess, at the U.S. Uh, subsidiary. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, they are, they are trying. I know Matt Herman. I've spoken to him a few times. A real nice guy, and he is really working hard, uh, getting out there recording stuff. They just got to get it on the market, and they've got to prove that it's user friendly. It's not just getting a raw recording, but actually doing the the processing so it sounds right, you know, and uh, and it works and it works right. So that I, you know, I think. Good things are coming, so let's let's keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best, uh, and we'll see how it goes. Okay. Now, just to put this in context, what uh, model railroad planning uh, issue is that? Uh, this year, 20, 2012. Okay, that's where your railroad is, 2012. 
Okay. I will have to pick up a copy of that at the uh, hobby shop later on today. Sure. So about, I mean, we've got a lot of space here. So Absolutely. I put in things in context by, well, how many feet of track is that? Have you ever added it up? Uh, no. I, I'm sure, you know what? It's probably in that model railroad planning article. I think they asked me to measure that, which was tedious, but I had to do it. You know, how many miles, how many, you know, how long, how, many, how much branch line, and how much main line, et cetera. So I think it is in there, Paul, but I can't tell you off the top of my head. I mean, it's a fair amount of track, but um, it's a fair amount of track for sure. It's not a real complex track plan per se. If you and there is a track plan in there, um, and I will say just to let you know um, that there's going to be a major feature on the Allagash in the August issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist. Okay, and that's kind of important to mention. I probably should have mentioned it earlier, but there will be a, a you know a nice a good story. It'll actually be the most comprehensive store uh, article on the railroad to date. The Model Railroad planning thing is fine, but it's there's limits eight pages and that's it. And you know you've only got a few photos in there, and it just kind of gives a basic flavor, but this will be more comprehensive. There will be a lot more pictures, uh, another track plan, you know, so people will be able to kind of get a, a, a better flavor for what the layout, the railroad is all about. But, it, you know, the, the track plan is not particularly complex. There's one, there, are, you know, aside from the staging yards that I've mentioned, there's one major uh, division point yard at Madrid, which divides the northern division and southern division. It's actually uh, a very narrow yard. It's only about 18 inches you know, by about, uh, that's long. Well, it's a very long linear yard. Um, and then there's one a small yard at New Sharon, but beyond that, it's a single track main line and with two subdivisions: the Androscoggin subdivision and the Kennebec subdivision. And you know, uh, with uh, with another branch line that goes out to Andover and uh, uh, you know some sidings at local industries, etc. But it's relatively a uh, very very simple track plan. Um, you know, like I said, it's all single level except for this new staging yard that's going in. And it's simple and linear. So, you know, take a peek at it, track plan. It's, I think it's a, it, we've done a decent job of util, utilization of the space. And, uh, you know, I'd be curious to see what people think of the, of the plan uh, when, they, when they see the article. Now, looking at photos, and, you know, Mike Rose has put a number of photos from your layout on his uh, uh, website. Uh, if you Google, you know, Mike Confalone, you'll get a number of lists like that. So I'm looking at photos from these different guys' albums. But right now I'm looking at one from that Mike uh, Rose took, and this goes back uh, photo date on this, is 2007. So let's talk about scenery. How have you approached doing the scenery? What We know we've got some incredible photo backdrops and stuff, but are you starting with dense foam and plaster cloth like a lot of the world does? How do you approach that? Yeah, I've done all of those various methods at one time or another. But currently, what I typically do for scenic forms is I use pink foam for areas that won't have a lot of trees planted. In other words, I, if I'm doing a, a field or uh, something that won't have very many trees, I'll use pink foam insulation, two inch, one inch, half inch, three quarter, whatever. I'll stack it and carve it and use hot glue to glue it together and then cover that with uh, a universal mud mixture, which was described in the paper mill um, article, which is, you know, basically Lustatsi's ground goop that he had, has been using for a long, long time. Um, so that's the universal filler for that. But for areas that have a lot of trees and, you know, uh, you know if you're doing a forested scene, you need something that's going to accept the tree material. Um, I don't like to have to drill holes for old trees or anything like that. And I'm using, because of the scene, scene, uh, the season I'm modeling, the early, early spring, uh, you've got bare trees and that's the deal. So I use forest foam, which is something you could find in Michael's Craft, uh, or, um, 
A.C. Moore or any number of uh, uh, florist uh, supply places. And it's a little more expensive, but it's designed to handle floral arrangements. So, um, and it carves really easily. It's green, generally green in color. And you can glue it together and stack it with hot glue or whatever. But the great thing about it is you just slap it up there, get your landform together with it, carve it, which is, again, very easy, much easier than carving the pink stuff. And then you can just paint it with brown latex paint, throw some dirt and leaves on it, and then poke trees into that. And the the, um, the foam holds the trees. They don't move around. You just poke them in, done. No drilling holes, nothing like that. So that's the basic. Those are the techniques I use for, uh, for, for you know, doing landforms. There's a, two scenes that jump out at me, one from a previous article where on the gravel pit, and then one of the uh, the logging scenes is the way you have created the cement mixer that's going down this road at the gravel pit is weathered up, and one of the most convincing aspects is the crud on the tires just makes it, to me, look like that's real. And then around the wood chip plate sure. is the rutted up, muddy goop because in West Virginia we had small mining operations and this just reminds me of what I would see back there when I was a kid. Well the season of modeling is called the mud season in you know northern New England that season between winter and spring and uh, you know where the trees are bare the grasses are matted down generally depending on how much snow we had that winter but they're still in that brown grass phase and then this you know the, the, the snow is melting away it's giving away to spring but it's there are piles of it still around, and that creates a uh, very soft ground, muddy, uh, you know, anywhere where there's truck traffic in any industrial setting, whether it's a wood yard or, or a back road or something, you know, you're going to have mud. It's a, it's just a fact of life. And, you know, that's the season I'm modeling. Um, so you kind of have to figure out a way to do that. And I've got a couple of wood yards on the layout that both have that, that muddy sort of rutted look. And that's actually a technique just to simply, uh, Using um, real sifted dirt, if you take real sifted dirt, fine sifted dirt, and mix it with uh, brown latex paint, dark brown latex paint, and a little bit of white glue and a little bit of water. Mix it to a consistency of uh, like a paste almost and brush it on to the surface uh, where you say you want a, uh, you know, a wood yard or a rutted road or something. And then run some vehicle tires through it, you know, and, uh, and there you go. It sets up. You know, with the with the uh, the tire ruts and everything, and then to keep the wet look, you see, it'll dry. When it dries, it just looks dry. But you want to create the look of a wet road or a wet lot where there's you know there's continued frost that's melting away. The ground is going to be wet, so you have to bring that wet look back. And what I use is a, uh, a product called um, Minwax Polycrylic, which is a uh, polyurethane, but it's an acrylic polyurethane, and just simply uh, brush that stuff on, a light coat of it, and it creates a, a little, just a slight, ever so slight sheen on that uh, mud surface and brings it back. Okay. All right. I, I see what you mean. I'm looking at one of the photos that Mike Rose took. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's the original little short line. That is now a branch on the Allagash Railway called the White Mountain Branch, and it, uh, that town is now called Andover. So that whole thing was, and I probably didn't mention this before, that existing little short line that I had was rebranded re as part of the Allagash. So simply re renamed, and the scenery is all the same. I mean, that was northern Vermont and northern Maine, very similar in, in scene, scenery, so it was easy to do. As I mentioned in the, the email, I was really impressed with 
the photo uh, backdrops. And I don't, I'm not looking for a tutorial, but how about a quick overview on how you do your photo backdrops? You go out photos and so forth. But what's the quick, uh, the quick and dirty version of that? The quick and dirty version is, you know, Dick Elwell was the first layout I had seen any photo backdrops on. I know he's used them over the years in various forms, not extensively, but little bits here and there. So I said, there's something to that. To me, it looked really, it just looked cool. I've never uh, painted backdrops just for me. Even if you're a great artist, you, you can't paint as well as a good photo backdrop. It's just not going to look the same. So as far as how to do it, people ask that question, how do you do that? How do you do that? And it's really the key thing is to get the right photos. If you can get the right photo, then the rest is, you know, you can learn the process. So you need to be able to get out with your camera, with digital cameras, man, this is so much easier. The first photo backdrop I did was with color slides, and that was ridiculous, you know. But using the high resolution, you know, the, the max setting on your camera, if you can, get out there and shoot. It, it, for instance, let's say you just want a distant hillside or something. You get out there, and you're driving along the road, and you see this hillside. It's not that far away. It's not too close, not too far. You get out, you snap a panoramic series of photos. Stand in one place and turn your, you know, keep your feet and your your torso looking straight ahead and simply rotate your upper body with the camera as if you were on a tripod as if you were a camera on a tripod and you could turn and you know shoot that scene panoramically if you can from left to right and then you're gonna you're gonna have a series of pictures and you got to just kind of keep track of where you framed it first picture was framed okay the the right hand side of the first picture was by that birch tree and then continue the second picture from that birch tree to the right etc etc Keep a mental picture of where the, the previous picture ended so you can start the next. You say you take four or five pictures, and then you got to get home and you put them into Photoshop and you stitch them together. You create a blank you know, sheet in Photoshop, and you import each image, and you butt it up against the next one, butt it up against the next, et cetera, et cetera, and then you've got your, your photo backdrop. Now, I often to extend photo backdrops to make them longer if I need to, uh, for instance, I'm working on a scene now. The photo backdrop is done. But it, it consisted of, I, I believe it was just four images, okay, from left to right, again, the, the process I just described of a distant mountain backdrop. Beautiful scene that's going to occupy a location called New Vineyard on the Allagash. So I needed to span 10 feet with these four pictures. Now, how do you span 10 feet with four, you know, 8.5 by 11 photos you, you know you can't so what you need to do is what you can do i should say is you can actually flip the image in photoshop so that it's the reverse of itself and then you could use that you can in other words you can use a single photo say in a montage of of pictures you can use a single photo two three four times just by flipping it and flipping it and flipping it throughout that uh as you build the image from left to right so it's not recognizable when the entire thing is stitched together and put up on the wall. Oh, okay. You know, you're not going to be able to, people won't recognize that oh, that's the same mountain. Wait a second, you know, but because it's reversed. It may look familiar, but it won't look to be a copy. In addition, you want to go in and erase any features that are absolutely glaring, you know, a particular peak on a mountain or a tree here or there, and try to vary the imagery a little bit so that it, you know, kind of all blends together. Okay. And that's just the example of a, of a hillside or something. But, I mean, if, does that describe to you the process? I mean, beyond that, it's really getting to know how to use Photoshop. And it, but there's no trickery to it. You know, it's uh, people think it's some sort of you have to have a high skill level to use Photoshop. 
uh, you know, for this purpose, I, I, there's very little you need to learn how to do. You need to import a photo. You need to be able to import another one, another one, and, and just bang them together. Um, I don't even use this. Some other programs out there that actually will stitch things together for you, and I don't even use those. I just do them manually. Okay. If you have a raw setting in your camera, I would use it, you know, just just because it is the best possible setting you have. Okay. All right. And then another aspect, I guess, of taking those three or four or whatever uh, 8x11 JPEGs and the enlargement is a lot to do with the printer when you take it to the printer and you tell them what the finish size should be. Well, no, you're going to create the finished size in Photoshop. So that's the other part of this that's difficult for some people. So how big do I make the photo? And so you need to establish a scale. So, for instance, you stitch these images together. And because you've used a raw setting, you've got this massive file. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. the resolution is huge. And so that's great because you've got all kinds of room to work with now. You can blow this thing up gigantic. So you, you basically, say you stitch your four images together just for the sake of, uh, of uh, simplicity. And now you've got, um, you need to determine how big to make that, that file. That, you know, you've got one picture now that's a component made up of four individual photos. Now you've got one picture, which you've already stitched together, and it's whatever, several feet long. How do you know? If it's to the if it's proper scale or not, mm -hmm. so what you need to do is find a point of reference. You know, maybe it's a photograph in a book or something that shows how what the relate. You need to either take a boxcar or a locomotive, some sort something from the model railroad that you can accurately measure or visually assess against that backdrop to determine if that mountain backdrop is too tall, too short, too, you know, whatever. For instance, let me give you a real example of, of how to do this, um, because it, it, with, instead of talking in generalities. On Mike Rose's layout, um, he has this complex called Mahoopany Paper. It's this big paper complex. Back in the summer, Mike asked me to do a photo backdrop for him to uh, span this uh, very large, large scene. The photo backdrop had to be somewhere around eight feet long. And it was simply of uh, distant mountains in Pennsylvania. He had raw photos that he had taken in, in and around that area that he wanted me to use. So he gave me the component photos. I stitched together a backdrop, and I did the, the, the uh, process I described earlier of flipping photos uh, over so that they were, you know, so I could extend the length of the backdrop without it being noticeable. But we needed to determine, okay, how big or how tall is this backdrop going to be? So we have a picture of Mahoopany paper taken from ground level, somebody standing on the ground shooting the paper mill with the mountain looming up behind it. So we were able to determine, Mike knew that the height of the building was however many feet. He just knew it. And then we determined that the mountain loomed up behind the building by, say, a third of the height of the building, an additional third. So knowing that the building in HO scale was, say, six inches high or nine inches high, say, well, let's say six, that the backdrop photo needed to loom up behind that building by an additional one-third or a total of nine inches high. So that set our vertical axis at nine inches. So by sizing the photo to a, a vertical dimension of nine inches, that automatically sets the horizontal, uh, the corresponding horizontal dimension. Okay. And that set, that determined the dimensions of that photo backdrop simply by using the building as a point of reference. You could have used a train uh, a boxcar, you know, a truck, a vehicle, a house, whatever it might be, 
you need to have a point of reference and a photograph that shows that item against whatever that backdrop is going to be so you can size it. And that that took away the trial and error nature of it. You know, we were able, I said, well, that's, there's your vertical dimension. It's nine inches. And that gave us a, a horizontal dimension of whatever it might have been for that backdrop. It might have been, you know, by then it was probably like seven or, or eight feet wide okay. by nine inches high. And that was it. So then we created one massive file at those, uh, you know, the, that dimension and brought it, he brought it to a local print shop and they printed it out uh, on a big roll. And at that point, you've got now a, a big, you know, uh, a thing you've got to roll out. You've got to cut around the, the hillside, you, you know, along the trees and then attach it to, we attach it in that case to a piece of styrene. So, and that's essentially how you do it. There's no easy way or like magic bullet or like formula. Each situation is different and you have to have some sort of skill to recognize perspective and to uh, be able to measure things. That's that's because I see a lot of photo backdrops out there. People try, they try hard, but you know the the photo backdrop is simply out of proportion. It's just you know it's too close or it's too far or whatever the case may be. Okay, all right. I appreciate that information. Do you have uh, you know your locomotives and stuff that I've I've seen? Do you have a favorite brand <laughs> as far as like you know I'm partial to Takato and uh, maybe some of the Genesis. Do you have a uh, leaning that way? Yeah, I mean, uh, I love the Athens Genesis F units. I have uh, three F7s and an F3 old Genesis. They all run wonderfully well. They run really nicely, and they've got um, the tsunami sound on board. They sound great. They run great. Excellent. I also um, have Atlas Century 420s and, and M420s, which were which ride on Atlas drives. So they're terrific runners as well. Uh, so I would say those two. Athern Genesis and anything from Atlas, those are, you know, that's all I have, really. You know, I've, I've uh, pretty much kind of uh, settled on those two, and they run together, and um, they run apart. So, you know, I would say those two manufacturers are what I, what I tend to stick with. Okay. Do you, uh, do you have a hard time getting rid of old stuff, you know, because maybe there's just a, a little bit of hoarder in all of us, or are you pretty good at keeping things thinned out? I am the king of purge. <laughs> I am the king okay. of purge. I I do not my dad was a pack rat. He kept everything. Okay, World War Two era kind of guy. And I was used to say, Dad, why are you keeping that? I might need it someday. And you know, uh he was he just didn't throw anything away. I am the um of you know, I didn't inherit that gene. Um I like to throw things away. And sometimes uh, again a friend of mine, Bob Gurley, he'll come over and he's in his mid to late sixties, so again from a different generation, he'll come over. The first thing he'll do is look her in the garbage cans. He'll start rummaging through the garbage cans to see what I've thrown out. What are you throwing that away for? You know, and he'll grab something out and I just don't I find that if I have a lot of stuff laying around, whether they're old freight car kits that are never going to get built or whatever it might be, I find that I, it, it causes stress because it's just clutter and it uh, gets in the way of getting stuff done. So if I'm not going to use it, if uh, you know, if it's not on the radar screen, I get rid of it. I, I, you know, And maybe I've thrown away some money over the course of time, but 
it's given me peace of mind. I, I really, honestly, it's like just-in-time uh, inventory. I do not hold anything. You know, I just I have what I need to run the railroad, and, you know, I stopped years ago. I stopped buying, you know, someone will come out with new locomotives. Oh, geez, that's fantastic. Like, for instance, now Athen Genesis is coming out with Main Central GP7s and all kinds of amazing stuff, amazing stuff for, of railroads that I love, you know, loved growing up. But I, I'm not going to buy this stuff because I can't use it on what I'm doing now. So um, it's a waste of money and it's a waste of space, you know. So okay, you are you are a well-disciplined man. <laughs> well, not particularly. <laughs> I just like to throw things away that I'm not using and that are causing clutter. I don't like clutter. So, and as I get older, I find that I like clutter less and less. And that goes, you know, that includes the household too. So. I've got a whole bunch of stuff here, Mark, that I'm going to give to younger modelers. Yeah, yeah. Old blue box stuff and older locomotives that I'm not going to invest in a DCC's chip to. Right. But I still have my original Aether and Alco PAs that I bought in 1972, you know. Well, if there's some sort of connection to them, you know, I've got some stuff I built as a kid. i got a few, you know, old locomotives that I built. I'm not going to – I won't get rid of that. I'll hold on to those. And just for uh, you know the nostalgia and, and and that's it you know good stuff. So, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think we all as modelers we all like to have one of everything, and and just because we like them, and um, you know, and, and you buy even freight cars. I mean, I know some some friends of mine that that have bought they have thousands of freight cars just because they like the cars. But you know, as they start to develop their model railroads and they want to run them and operate them, they find that. They cut way too much, and they need to purge, 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 and, you know, get rid of some of the stuff because you can't operate. You know, your staging yards are all plugged. You've got no way to put anything, and, you know, so too much can be a, a bad thing at times. I saved. I I have all my Depke and Smith Miller, what they called sandbox toys, back from the, the 50s. And, yeah, these are painted with lead paint, and the <laughs> road graders weigh 15 pounds, and yeah. so my – Older's daughter goes, why do you keep this stuff? And I said, so your sons can play with it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It'll be at your house soon, long as I'm sure that, you know, Haver won't hurt himself on it, and he can pick it up and move it around. Hey, it's going to show up one day at your house. <laughs> very, very good. That's a great idea. Now, you do some incredible weathering. Your F7s are just, they just embody that feel that they've labored long and hard. That Canadian Pacific Alco, just excellent. Tell me about your weathering process. How do you do it? Well, um, I was doing weathering uh, maybe six, seven years ago. I was doing it a lot. I was, you know, selling cars on eBay, and I had clients I was weathering for, and people, customers, I should say, that I was weathering for. So I got, you know, got to try a lot of different techniques out. Today, I don't do it as much just because I've been building the railroad, but eventually I will be getting back into that and getting back to the workbench and sitting down, and and I really look forward to it because it's a lot of fun because I I do find that when you weather something, nothing brings a, a model to life like weathering, whether it's a building or a locomotive or a freight car. So I like to use different techniques. For instance, for the diesels, old weather-beaten F units or, or Alco road switchers, I'm finding that, especially with the locomotives that are darker in color, and a lot of the Allagash locomotives, the older uh, the older paint scheme is a dark green with yellow 
lettering and trim, they really do, they respond well uh, to using pow- weathering powders. I use AIM powders. And I use them in different, I use a bunch of different colors. I layer them. I stipple them. Um, I'll do all sorts of different, I'll drag them, kind of create exhaust stains with them, just all kinds of interesting stuff. Nothing looks better on, on locomotive trucks than AIM or Bragdon. I haven't used Bragdon, I use AIM. Weathering powders, because it essentially, all of the material that accumulates on uh, locomotive trucks is dry in nature. You know, it's, it's either spatter from the roadbed, which dries, it's rust, you know, it's all particulate. The ex- even the exhaust that comes out the stack, you know, it's it's particulate, it's carbon. So the pow- I find that the powders, just because of the uh, by nature of of what they are, represent particulate weathering materials really well versus paint. It's I do use some paint, you know, I'll I'll to do like a bow wave on an F unit, I'll spray some polyscale paint. But I found over the years that I use the airbrush less and less. I I really don't even use the airbrush very much at all. It's mostly hand weathering with various techniques. I also use oils, especially for like uh, for freight car weathering or for for lighter colored subjects. Like if something is an orange or red or yellow, I find that I use less powders and I use more of uh, you know oil washes, you know, oil paints and a turpentine wash or something like that. Um, and then, of course, I use full-strength oils for, like, boxcar roof, stuff like that, or maybe some uh, the roof on a, on a, you know, a tin roof on a, on a building. I'll use full-strength oils and stipple those on. So various techniques, really. Uh, you know, the sky's the limit. I, I try to use a little bit of everything and not too much of one thing. And, uh, and I don't really have any specific order of how I do it. I just kind of wing it. And I get dirty in the process, you know, and uh, you know, I don't really worry about it too, too much. And um, Because, you know, weathering can always be adjusted. You know, you go little by little, take it easy, and but... I think most people, if you just get in there and try it, you know, have a few brushes and some weathering powders, you can you can really create a, a nice, convincing model. What do you, let me uh, ask you, because this has frustrated the, the, the crap out of me. Uh, I've got Winton oils yep. in addition to the pigments, like you say, probably the most comfortable with pigment. But if I do oil and I'll, you know, use something like a paper clip or an X-Acto knife to put a dab or two at the top and then turpentine, then drag down through it and let it bleed down the side of the car. What do you use as a brush? Because I know that if you don't have the right quality of brush, then you're going to end up, instead of that nice, even layer, you're going to end up with some level of streak. What do you use for brushes in that? Oh, boy. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm not a real process person in terms of, okay, you got to have this brush and that brush and you've got to have it in this kind of jar and this is how you do it and you wear gloves and don't get dirty. I I really just grab whatever the hell I have laying around and uh, and get dirty and just kind of go at it. But, you know, yes, I mean, for street, specifically for that technique you described, if you have flat, any sort of flat brush, I mean, a wide, flat brush with, you know, no angle on the tip, you know, just a straight cut across, but and then dunk it in the turpentine, you know, and just kind of get rid of most of the turpentine. What I find you do is if you if you take a look, and again, going from, from memory of how I did this, I typically would create a, a nick in the surface of the car first with an X-Acto knife, just a little nick. 
and then I would fill that with a little bit of oil paint, okay, rust color. Just put a dab of it in there so it's sitting inside that instead of just on the surface of the car. And then take the brush and, um, you know, go over that area where the, the oil is and just hold it there for one, two, maybe three seconds and then drag it down straight because it gives it a chance to get into the oil and, you know, into the paint and, you know, dissolve a little bit of it and get it on the brush and then you can drag it straight down. I, you know, be honest with you, Paul, I mean, that process takes, you know, a steady hand, and it doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes it's like, oh, that didn't come out right. I'll wipe it off and try it again. It's one of those things that's very hard to get that absolutely straight streaking. Um, and, again, if there is a magic formula for it or a specific brush that somebody uses, I don't know about it because I just tend to use whatever I have on hand. Okay. And you mentioned the, the great thing about oils. If you don't like it, you just load up the brush with turpin, uh, turpentine, turpentine, and just dilute it all the way off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a great medium to work in. The colors are more intense, I think, you know, than anything else. I mean, um, I've always, I used to, when I was doing freight car weathering heavily, it, you know, that's... Uh, that was my medium of choice. I actually sprayed the. I used to spray the oils. You know, I used to create a, uh, a thick, viscous sort of turpentine and oil spray. It was almost like tro- the consistency of chocolate syrup. I'd put it through the airbrush at about a 20 psi, maybe even a little less. You could really get some neat effects with it uh, by spraying it. You know, just gonna kind of try different things and and you know experiment a little bit. Well, tell me, what's in the future for the Allagash? There's a lot in the future, actually. Um, like I mentioned, the the railroad is built out now from end to end, and with the addition, with all the the, the reconstruction that was done in the garage, which houses the uh, the extreme north end of the railroad and the extreme south end of the railroad, three staging yards there. Um, they all have to be relayed now. All the track has to be put back in now that the the uh, physical the wood has been rebuilt. All fascia's done. There's carpeting in the room. The Room is fully lit. Everything's done. So it's really just building individual scenes and, uh, you know, getting the railroad operational again, building individual scenes, working on scenery, um, adding to the locomotive roster. There are plans. We just I just purchased a, a, some uh, Athern Genesis GP7s and 9s, and then there are Jeep 38-2s coming hopefully in the fall, which we'll be adding to the roster. We'll also be adding some additional Alcos. Um, so beefing the roster up to about, say, 30-odd locomotives or so so that we can operate it uh, efficiently and have plenty of variety. There is also, I mean, there's a, just a ton of work to do. I, I would say that the railroad is, is at least five to seven years from com- quote-unquote completion, maybe a little less, but uh, there's a lot of scenery to be done. And I'm, I'm fortunate to have some really some really good friends who help with, with certain things. You know, I've got uh, Rich Cobb a master model builder out in New York who builds a lot of the structures uh, for the railroad. I've got my friend Neil Schofield who built recently built a, a single-stall engine house for me. I've got my friend Dave Barlow down in, in Londonderry, New Hampshire here, who builds some of the wood chip cars, etc. So I've got, uh, you know, people that help out with uh, a lot of the, the stuff that needs to be done. I mean, I do all of the physical, you know, bench work and all the scenery and all that, track work and all that uh, stuff. But there are these little things that on the side, these important things, structures and different freight cars and stuff that will add to the to the, uh, to the the railroad over time and um, make it what I hope to be a great model railroad someday. There's a ton of work to do, but, you know, I'm looking forward to, to getting busy on it. 
there's lots of exciting things down the road. We're actually going to start probably in a few months here. We'll, uh, we're going to have a, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jack Ozanich's Atlantic Great Eastern model railroad that's been in great model railroads and model railroad planning over the years, but we're going to have a, a joint train with the uh, Atlantic Great Eastern that will come onto the Allagash because our, our two railroads actually interchange at a place called Clayton Lake in Maine. So that will add an additional dimension. Um, there will be a combined train with the Canadian Pacific, an ore train, which is interesting. Uh, so lots of there's lots of things planned, and the railroad will become more and more muscular, for lack of a better term, as time goes on. More locomotives, more traffic, um, and the operating sessions will get more intense, um, and a lot more fun, I hope. you know. So that's, I guess, the ultimate goal is to make it as enjoyable as possible, uh, and I think we're well on our way to getting there. Oh, and I would also mention that, you know, just for the, for the, uh, folks listening that there are a lot more things planned for model railroad hobbyists and i think that's really important i know we've we touched on the dvd earlier um and the article that's going to appear in august but there's a lot of other potential uh project that we'll be working on uh, as long as people want them so uh from you know having said that um, you know real excited to be working with joe and you know providing contributing to what i think is the most exciting uh model railroad publication out there by far and based upon the uh, the Google Analytics, there is a huge amount of people that agree with that statement every month. I really thank you for your time here this morning. Appreciate your time. It's been uh, an enjoyable time, very informative time. Uh, look forward to the uh, the DVD. I look forward to the uh, the August continuation of uh, especially the big photo spread. Excellent, excellent. Well, I look forward to bringing it to you and. Uh... It's been great talking to you, Paul, and uh, having you back any time. And uh, once again, thanks thanks for uh, taking the time to, to, to speak with me today. Oh, it's our pleasure.